Welcome back to Couple of Criminals. This is Mariah. And this is Anton, and we are your average couple reviewing your not-so-average crimes. This episode is number 23 of a 50-part series that we are doing where the episodes are based on a different crime in each state in the United States of America and are in alphabetical order, which means today's case will be based on a crime in Minnesota. Before I get into the case that I chose, let's hear Anton's joke of the day. Take it away. All right, Mariah, I find this to be a pretty good joke as it's raining outside right now. Okay, let's hear it. What kind of pants do clouds wear? I have no idea. What, what kind of pants do clouds wear? Thunder pants. Oh my goodness, that's a good one. And it's been thundering and lightning today, It has been, too. yes, the yeah. la- even for the last couple of days. Yeah, that's a good joke. I like that one. That's a good dad joke. Well, now that we have heard Anton's fantastic joke of the day, it's time to get into the case that I've selected from Minnesota. Today's case takes place during the early 80s, but specifically it starts on the night of New Year's Eve in 1980 in St. Paul, Minnesota. On this night, Karen Potak was a college student and, like any other student, was out at a New Year's party. And, of course, left shortly after midnight when all the celebrations had started to die down. Everybody had done their 3-2-1 and it was time to head home. For me, there's something about a good New Year's Eve party that just really makes you excited for the new year and what it could entail. I feel like there's so much unknown when you go into January 1st, and it's exciting. It is exciting, although I don't think you understand because you never stay up that late anyways. You know, it's so funny because I honestly don't remember the last time I stayed up till midnight on New Year's. I am very much an old lady and prefer my sleep over watching the ball drop in Times Square. Oh, I love staying up to midnight. Yeah. Something that I always remember, though, is that as soon as it strikes midnight on New Year's, wherever I'm at, most likely in bed, Anton still gives me a kiss goodnight. And I think that's like the nice thing is he is still quite the romantic, even with his old woman. Yeah, I guess I'm just an old man as well. I know. Okay, so now back in St. Paul, Minnesota, it was the early hours of January 1st, 1981 now, when Potak was reported to be wandering around the town after she had left the party. So this is where she was last, last seen, was walking around the town. However, if everyone was resting peacefully this night or celebrating an exciting year to come, they wouldn't be for long. At about 3 a.m., the local police station received a very bizarre call that they were unsure if they could even take legitimately. A man on the other line called into the station saying that a squad of police needed to be dispatched immediately to a local manufacturing machine shop because there was a girl badly hurt there. Like I said, I can't imagine being the dispatcher or the receiving or the person on the receiving end of this call and wondering if this is a legitimate tip or if it is some sort of like New Year's like prank. Like a New Year's prank. Yeah, yeah. That's what I, I mean, honestly, that's what I'd probably think. But obviously dispatchers have their job for a reason yep. and nonetheless took the tip legitimately and police ended up being dispatched to the shop that was given to them on the line. As they should take it legitimately. I mean, really, they should probably take any call for help legitimately. Yeah. And when the police who were dispatched arrived on the scene where they had this tip, they ended up finding a naked body of a female who appeared to be severely beaten and in bad shape. By some miracle, though, this woman that they had found, who they didn't know who it was, was alive, but still in bad condition. Whoever had done this had beaten her profusely, and she had sustained even a crack to her skull. So she was in really, really bad shape. Sounds like she was close to death almost. Yeah, yeah. And this woman, whoever it was that was still alive, had a long road of recovery. I mean, there's a lot of damage here. And this woman ended up being that of Karen Potak, who just hours before had been celebrating the ringing in of the new year and was now fighting for her life. And her life was going to be a lot different because of this attack. 
as any attempted homicide investigation would, because that's what they would assume is this is an attempted murder. From the looks of it, they they come into this one bizarre place that's most likely closed and two, a lady that's almost dead. Like, yeah, I would assume I would assume they would think that it was. Yeah. Attempted attempted murder. So obviously it starts like any other case would was what is the motive and who did it? And of course, the number one suspect or person of interest that would be in this case would be the man who called in the tip himself. I mean, this was New Year's Day or in the very early hours. There's no way that anyone besides the person who did it would know about this body. Yeah, because you don't just come stumbling upon a... Right. Again, a closed warehouse, most likely. And not stay at the scene. Like, that's what I think. So who was this guy and how would they find him? The police were about to get a big break in their case, and they didn't know it yet. Because only a few months after Karen Potok's body was found, the police received another phone call from what sounded like the same man from the Potak case. This time, he wasn't calling about that case, which that's what they were hoping for. But instead, he called pleading for help and to be found and stopped. And he went on and said, I just stabbed somebody with an ice pick. I can't stop myself. This led police to the discovery of 18-year-old Kimberly Compton. She was found near an unfinished freeway, and she was now the second victim, which one survived victim, and then she was now a murdered victim, of this anonymous, now-dubbed, weepy-voiced killer. Kimberly was found killed, and she had been stabbed profusely with, like what the caller had said, with an ice pick. And this anonymous tip left everyone fat, like, unfathomable. I mean, who was this guy and how did he know all of these things? A couple days after the body of Kimberly was found, the anonymous caller called again and exclaimed he was sorry for stabbing and killing Compton and that he was going to turn himself in. But after this call, no one ever came forward and turned themselves in. This guy's just toying with the police pretty much. Yeah, or he has this back and forth conscience where he feels guilty, but he's too scared. Maybe multiple personalities. Yeah, I mean, possibly. But clearly he's on a rampage. Yeah. So even though no one came in, the crimes from this guilty and now, like I said, weepy voiced killer did not stop. Kathleen Greening was found killed in her home just outside of St. Paul, and it appeared she had been drowned in her own bathtub in her home. This was a different crime, a different scene, and a different MO. And even more bizarre was that not one phone call ever came in from the serial killer at the time. So there's no ties to the weepy voice killer at all. Yeah. But it's another murder that took place just a couple months after. And although it's not tied now, I wanted to mention it in the timeline because it will become tied later. Months had passed since the first attack, and this is when the body of Barbara Simmons was found along the Minneapolis River, and she had been stabbed to death. It was said that she had been stabbed over 40 times, upwards to 100 times, which to me, and what we've learned from, you know, doing true crime cases is that is a personal overkill. Oh, yeah, that's way overkill. Yeah, like... Like overshot. I mean, most of the time you get a good stab to the heart or, you know, side of the head. It could be a one and done. One and done. After that, it's pretty much overkill. Yeah. And so as we know, and what I've been going over, if this is tied to the anonymous, you know, weeby voice killer, then we know it isn't personal and that it's just a rampage and he's just out for it and it doesn't matter. Two days after the body of Simmons was found, the police received yet another anonymous call to the station regarding the murder. The anonymous caller apologized for stabbing Simmons and then also went on to claim responsibility for the Kimberly Compton murder as well. 
But of course, authorities could already assume that they were connected because of him and his, his weepy calls. But they still did not know who he was. What's the time frame? Yeah, so this was just, this is all in the course of just a few months. Yeah, I'm talking, but I was talking oh, about a year. Um, this is in now, this is in 1981, okay. because the first attack happened in, on New Year's Day in 1981. Like I mentioned, they did not know who he was. But the nice thing was, in any case, as nice as it can be, this fourth case was actually fruitful and brought in one helpful tip that was from a waitress at a local bar who had seen Barbara Simmons that night before her death. And lo and behold, the waitress said that she was accompanied with a man. And his man, this man's name was that of Paul Michael Stephanie. Paul Michael Stephanie was born in Austin, Minnesota in September of 1944. Stephanie was the youngest of 10 children. Now, I'm the second oldest of five. I cannot imagine being one of 10. Uh, that's a lot. Well, technically, he's 10 of 10. Yeah, he would be number 10. Yeah, that's a lot of children, and that's a lot of... I mean, it's fun. Like you always say, filled your own baseball team. Oh, but, yeah, I would love that. Yeah, but that's a lot of kids. And he was born into a very religious Catholic family. However, his mother in Stephanie's young age ended up remarrying around the time that he was about three years old. And this caused a lot of turmoil, not because she got divorced and remarried, but because the person she remarried was very abusive. His stepfather was known to abuse the children, and he was known to beat each of his stepchildren and would throw them down the home stairs. That's just one of the many stories that sources said. As Stephanie grew up and became an adult, he quickly got married to a woman by the name of Beverly Leiter. Beverly and Stephanie would go on to have a daughter together. This just reminds me so much of Criminal Minds. And I know Criminal Minds is a fictional show, but it is based off of some true crimes. But what I love about Criminal Minds is in each episode, it depicts different aspects of a normal life. It is a life being lived by a complete psychopath. And these people oftentimes have normal lives. They go home to normal families, work a normal nine to five jobs, go to places like Wendy's and Walmart, and you would never know who they are, but they are who they are. And it just blows my mind. And I just love how Criminal Minds depicts that. But I mean, look at this. Stephanie had a normal job, a wife and a daughter, and went on to do these horrible things over the course of a couple years. And I just always wonder where and how it goes wrong or what happened that triggered it all of a sudden. However, as we know, good things don't always last long. So Stephanie's marriage ended in divorce. Stephanie coincidentally worked for the manufacturing company that the first body was found at. And he worked there as a janitor and was fired just three years prior to his first surviving victim's body being found there. Oh, so he wasn't even like he was working, not working there, there So somehow he still had keys to the building. Well, she wasn't found in the building. She was oh, found outside. outside the building. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. Makes more sense then. So now that police knew who Stephanie was and that he had ties to not only the most recent victim because of the 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 server and the, the bartender, waitress, yeah. but he also had ties to the manufacturing shop that held the first victim who ended up surviving. Because of this, they now had a viable suspect or a person of interest and had probable cause to start police monitoring. Well, of course, they figured this out very quick that it was yeah. most likely this guy who called. Well, and thank so. goodness that the waitress came forward. I feel like in some cases, people go silent for so long and then cases go cold and suspects die and there's nothing that ever can be done yeah. about it. So thank goodness to that waitress who came forward. When the police were monitoring him, 
you know, he shouldn't be getting away with anything, but however, he was somehow able to get another woman into his grasp. Stephanie went out one night in late August of 1982 and picked up a 19-year-old sex worker by the name of Denise Williams. After their interaction, Denise knew something was off and that something was wrong with this man. She immediately knew her suspicions were correct when he began driving them into the darker suburban areas rather than heading back into the city where she had originally been picked up. Denise started thinking about what to do in the case of something happened, and she was able to find a glass bottle in the car that she was prepared to use, and if he tried anything, she would use this bottle. Her survival mode kicked in pretty much. Which is is fantastic. And he ended up trying something. He had a screwdriver in his hand and drove down a road, and at the end of the road, he stabbed her repeatedly with a screwdriver in her abdomen. Just as quickly as he stabbed her, she hit him in the head with the glass bottle she had found in the car. With his injury, she is able to get out of the car, but is bleeding profusely and is in excruciating pain, but is somehow able to scream for help over and over again, and this causes a man to wake up and confront Stephanie, while at this point, he is still trying to kill Denise. He's still attacking Denise with the screwdriver. I mean, I'm just thinking here, a screwdriver, it's got to be pretty painful to get stabbed with. Typically, they're dull. Sometimes they can be sharp. But, but not sharp like a knife. Not but sharp where it just easily penetrates the skin. But over and over, I can't even with imagine. With probably like brute force yeah. to be able to penetrate. Thankfully, this heroic man ends up intervening and Stephanie ends up fleeing the scene. So you have to think, Stephanie is attacking this unknown woman and this unknown man comes and intervenes in between this attack with a screwdriver and... Stephanie gets scared and flees quickly, and the man ends up calling for an ambulance in order to get Denise the care she needed urgently. And this is a huge help because we have another surviving victim. Mm -hmm. Now, Anton, you know a little bit more about our killer with the background that I've been able to give. What do you think he does now? What is his next move? I got to think now he has another. Well, I'm assuming he probably thought the first one, the first victim that he had at the warehouse died. I'm assuming so, but he would know now that she's but, still yeah, alive. But yeah, he would know now that she's still alive. Now this is the second victim, and now that she... Well, this is his or, sorry, fifth second victim. second living victim. Second living victim, yeah. And his next move, honestly, to me, should be, you know, pretty much try to go back to his normal life of, you know, wife. I guess he doesn't have his wife anymore. You don't think he calls? Um, you have to remember who he is. Do you think he places a call? Now that I'm thinking of it, now well, now that you brought that up, he most likely does. But I really hope he. Uh, okay, I can't say I really hope he doesn't. But at the same time, I'm like, it would be smart of him not to. But he right. probably does. Yeah. So you have to think. He's injured. She was able to get in a couple good whacks with this glass this glass bottle that she found in his car, and the only people that he can trust who he has turned to anonymously anonymously previously is that of emergency services themselves and so when he gets back to his apartment he realizes the condition he's in and the amount of blood he is losing and guess what he does does he call for an ambulance he calls emergency services and he's not calling to confess the attack he just committed but he's calling regarding the injuries he sustained from the attack but he doesn't mention the attack of course not Immediately, the authorities on the other line were able to quickly recognize the man in distress as their weepy-voiced serial killer because he sounded hysterical on the line and he was always hysterical in all of his calls. They had him and they knew it and he did not. 
which like you said, he shouldn't have called. But this time he didn't call to report anything. He called to report his own injuries. Yeah, so he could go to the hospital in an ambulance pretty much. Yeah. So Stephanie ended up quickly being identified as the attacker of Denise, who is the surviving victim, and was also arrested and charged for the murder of Barbara Simmons. Unfortunately, and I really mean that unfortunately, they were not able to tie him to the other attacks and homicides because they didn't have enough evidence or audio proof to do so. So they weren't able to solely convict him of the other crimes based off of the phone calls. Which is just a bummer. Like That is a bummer. Literally unfortunate. I literally just hung my head because I heard that. I know. However, with the charges at hand that they were able to convict against him, Stephanie ended up being found guilty of Barbara Simmons' murder and was also found guilty in the attempted murder of Denise Williams, so the attack with the screwdrivers. Yeah. He was sentenced to 40 years. However, this is not all. Stephanie, while serving his 40-year sentence was diagnosed with terminal skin cancer and was told he had possibly a year or less to live. So he was for sure going to die behind bars. With this newfound diagnosis and death sentence, he wanted to confess his sins. And he really wanted to get some weight off his shoulders, as oftentimes we see when people have death sentences or on death row. He ended up confessing to the murders of Kim Compton and Kathleen Greening and confirmed he did kill Barbara Simmons. Like I mentioned earlier, Stephanie wasn't even connected to the drowning of Kathleen Greening. So this is the woman who drowned in her bathtub in her her home. Because it wasn't tied to him because he had made no call afterwards. He did not tip himself off. Yeah. And yeah, he it was a totally different crime and scene. It was at a home, it was a bathtub. There was no stabbing, no beating. So then he also admitted to the first attack on Kimberly Compton and then admitted guilt to the last attack on Denise Williams, although he had already been convicted of the two crimes. Yeah. He tortured Minnesota for a total of two years. And in 1998, he ended up dying of skin cancer. So he ended up dying of his diagnosis. And that is the case of the weepy voiced serial killer or who is known as Paul Michael Stephanie. Dang blows my mind i know i'm thinking like weepy voice but for some reason the whole time i'm thinking like you know it's like quiet yeah and things like that but then you told me it was hysterical i was like okay i guess that makes sense too yeah and that's actually something i wanted to to let you know about um afterwards because they did have recordings of the call. When you call into 911, these calls are recorded oh, every, every single, single time. Every single time, yeah. And so they actually ended up being published as a strategy to be able to find the killer. And it was published in local broadcasts, news sources, radios, like anywhere that would accept these audio recordings to find this killer, they were published. Which I'm sure a lot of places probably did oh, of accept these. Yeah. And guess what? They received hundreds of tips hundreds of audio clips, hundreds of people suggestions that they thought it was not one of them matched because the anonymous caller, like I, like his name says he was weepy and hysterical on every single call. And so these tips that would come in, these were casual audio clips. If they received an audio clip, you couldn't confirm who it was. And that's why they couldn't tie those other crimes to him where he had called in because him standing on the like sitting on the stand and talking is not the same as him Him on the phone yes in his weepy hysterical voice so they tried i mean they used the audio clips but it didn't it didn't help them catch the killer but what did was the killer himself because he was injured and i just think that is amazing mind blown yeah yeah 
Well, thank you for listening to Couple of Criminals. This week, as I mentioned on our social media accounts, we will be dropping two episodes. So instead of listening to the next case next week, we actually look forward to you just hitting the next button and listening to the case that Anton will be reviewing from Mississippi. Until then, this is your Couple of Criminals signing off.